0: Well, I wanted to start today's teaching uh, this morning by doing a little bit of a recap uh, on the book of Matthew, because believe it or not, we are really coming to the conclusion of of the book of Matthew. If you can remember where we're at, and you could see the scripture reference of Matthew 25, we're in this last week of Jesus' physical life on this earth. We're in kind of the moments and the days that are leading up to his death and resurrection. And after today's uh, teaching this morning, we only have three more weeks in the book of Matthew that's it. So like we have been on this journey for I think it's been at least 2 years I believe and we're coming to its uh, inevitable conclusion which is which is really great. But I wanted to kind of look back for a quick uh, a quick moment to remember Everything that's happened in this book so far is informing what's happening at the end of this book. So, the book of Matthew is written predominantly to a Jewish audience. um, And there's a lot of correlations that you see in the book of Matthew that point to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So the book of Matthew is broken up, there's an introduction and a conclusion, and then there's five sections that are built into the book. And, And the reason why the author did this was to connect this book with the Old Testament Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And the whole opening uh, of the book of Matthew, we see a genealogy of Jesus. So that's his bloodline. And we see that Jesus is from the line of Abraham. He's from the line of David. um, So he meets the bloodline requirements of who the Old Testament foretold as who the Messiah would be. And then we get to Jesus starting to teach in the first section of the book of Matthew, which is chapters 4 through 7, where he announces his kingdom. And this is where we see that beautiful Sermon on the Mount. And the first time we see that Jesus' kingdom is very different than the world's idea of what a kingdom should be. It's not built on armament and strength. It's built on grace and love and hope. And his kingdom is really upside down. And I thank God that Jesus is not just a God of words, but he's also a God of action. And in the next section in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we see Jesus physically bringing his kingdom into the lives of people. And in that section, we see Jesus perform miracles, and there's three sets of, uh, of threes, and there's these calls to action that happen in these chapters. We see Jesus healing the mute and raising the dead and healing the sick and calming the storm. And every time he does these miracles, it is followed up by a question that he asks to the people who are around him. He said, ''Come and follow me. Would you follow Jesus?'' And, and, and then after that, in chapters 11, 12, and 13, we get to see this response to Jesus. I love Jesus. I got my hair cut yesterday, and this guy that had a shirt, that, a hat that said, Jesus is Lord. And I said, I love your hat, man. I love Jesus too. But there are people who don't love the Lord. And we saw in chapters 11, 12, and 13, people rejecting Jesus, looking at him and saying, you are not the Messiah, And we spent a lot of time in the fourth section of the book of Matthew, which is chapters 14 through 20, and it was a really important section because if we we can remember... This is where the author was explaining how people had different expectations of Jesus, meaning that there were people who thought Jesus was coming to be this warrior king, that he only came to save the Jewish people. But we see Jesus teach again that his kingdom is upside down, that if you want true wealth, you give what you have away. That if something is done wrong to you, you don't seek revenge, you offer forgiveness. And we have these two beautiful miracles where Jesus feeds large crowds of people. And what's important there is one of those miracles was to the Jewish people and another one was to the non-Jewish people. So Jesus is showing through what he's doing that his kingdom is for everybody. And he asked his disciples this really important question, and it's something that we need to think about on a daily basis. He asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And remember, we talked about that. Is Jesus to you just a genie in a bottle where you go to him when something is wrong? Or is he truly the king of your life? And as we look at our text this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. We have entered this final portion, this final section of the book of Matthew before Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection. You see, at this part of the book of Matthew, Jesus has come back to Jerusalem. He is here for the Passover festival. It's the last week of his physical life, and what he chooses to do with that is really important. He goes to the temple, he creates a huge scene by flipping tables upside down, and his actions are so intense and so elevated that it actually brings daily sacrifices in the temple to a halt. And if you guys can remember about a year ago, we talked about the temple. The temple was the physical place where the presence of God was. What was present where you can actually encounter the presence of God physically here on this earth and Jesus goes there and he flips the tables because what he saw what was happening in the temples was wrong and he asserts his royal authority as he is the king. He critiques the religious leaders as hypocrites and he draws this proverbial line in the sand. And we know from the time that we've spent looking at this, that those actions were not met with excitement from the religious leaders. In fact, what what came out of that was a plot to murder Jesus, was a plot to kill Jesus. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that his time is limited on this earth. And he's taking his last days with his disciples very seriously. Instead of traveling the world and seeing the sights... He's pouring out his final teachings to the ones that are closest to him. He's teaching his disciples about what is going to happen at the end. But as this 25th chapter of Matthew starts, Jesus opens again with another parable. And this parable is on the heels of the teaching two weeks ago, which was the parable of the, of the two servants, the faithful and the unfaithful. And uh, so if we can, remember, a parable is nothing more than a simple story used to illustrate a spiritual principle. So let's jump into the book of Matthew. Chapter 25, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. And you can see the opening line here. It says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Okay? So remember, this is coming off of the heels of the end of Matthew chapter 24. This is likely a very seamless teaching where we understand this with the servants, and now we're jumping into this parable. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. "'The foolish ones took their lamps "'but did not take any oil with them. "'The wise ones, however, took oil and jars "'along with their lamps. "'The bridegroom was a long time incoming "'and they became drowsy and fell asleep. "'At midnight, the cry rang out, "'Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him.' But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you recognizing, Lord, that this life is difficult Lord, that some of us have a lot of uh, burdens or baggage that we're coming to your house this morning in, Lord. But, God, your word is faithful that you don't leave us and you don't forsake us. You walk through these things with us, God, and you are sharing these teachings with, your dis- with the disciples because you love them, Father. And I pray that we would hear your words today. That, Holy Spirit, you would move in our hearts and teach us how to respond to your word, Lord, and that you would go before us this week and these days that are ahead of us, God, that we would learn to be faithful servants and faithful stewards of the time that you've given us. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for all that you're doing. Guide us this morning. We ask this in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. So I know that there's some obvious kind of implications here, right, in the parable where we, we hear where these doors are shut. We, we can spend a lot of time on how eternity is eternity for a reason, um, that there is a final judgment. We have those things, but we have spent some time on that uh, over these last few weeks. So I want to kind of unpack this parable and, and look at what um, the, the meaning of what Jesus was communicating directly to the disciples was. So when you look at a parable, it's, it's this story that is teaching us these deeper spiritual principles. So we have to look at some things. We have a setting, okay? So we have a setting where there's a wedding that's taking place. And we have characters that Jesus is talking about. And in this, he's talking about virgins. And we have Jesus letting us know that this entire scene is much like the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so let's kind of look at this piece by piece. The first thing I want to look at is the word that's used in this passage for virgin, which in the Greek is parthenios. Okay, now you might have in your Bible, in your translation, the NIV has virgin. I think some other translations are going to use the word bridesmaid. Okay, that original Greek word not only refers to an actual virgin, but it also refers to an, uh, to a young, unmarried woman. So if your Bible has bridesmaid, that would be a good translation. That's not a wrong translation. And I actually want to kind of run with that a little bit this morning. Now, I have personally never been a bridesmaid at a wedding, Okay. I've been a groomsman for a few weddings, but I've never been a bridesmaid for a wedding. But when Wendy and I got married, there were bridesmaids that were standing next to her, and I've seen my wife be a bridesmaid at different times. And I was thinking about bridesmaids and kind of what their roles or what their jobs were, and I Googled some stuff too because I've never actually uh, served in that capacity. Um, But if you were to, to define what a bridesmaid's job is during a wedding, Um, during the planning and during the day of, um, I would say that a bridesmaid offers emotional support to the bride-to-be. Would you guys tend to agree with that? Okay? They also might give insight into a few areas of planning. They might kind of bounce ideas back and forth off of people. But they also make sure that if there's any last-minute details that need to be taken care of, they would take that off the bride's plate so the bride could shine. Now, I can promise you that I know some ladies who have been incredible bridesmaids to a point where the story I'm about to tell you is 100% real. But the names have been changed to protect their identities. (laughs) I know of a wedding where the bride did not really put a bouquet together the way she wanted to put the bouquet together, and she did not communicate to people what she wanted. But on the wedding day, she decided that she wanted lavender in um, in her bouquet. And I know that when the bridesmaids found out, they were in their dresses, their makeup was done, and their hair was done, and there was heat like there was the last few days uh, during this wedding. And the bridesmaids said, well, we have to figure this out and they decided to go to a parking lot where lavender was growing on the fences uh, by the garbage cans, if I'm not mistaken, and trim them off of the fences to put them in the bouquet of this uh, this bride-to-be. And if you look at the pictures from this wedding, the bride looks great, and all the bridesmaids' faces are bright red, their hair is all disheveled because it was eight billion degrees outside when that happens. So that is a commitment to their calling, and we commend the ladies who have done that. Okay, so and I share that as just kind of a a funny anecdote, but but the reality is the bridesmaids that are even represented in this parable, they, they have a responsibility in a wedding festival and in this time. Okay, so we understand who these players are, but let's look at the setting, right? We have this wedding, and Jesus is talking about another wedding, and weddings would be important to the context and the people that Jesus is communicating to. So one commentator explained weddings like this. He said, in ancient times, weddings were held towards the evenings, and torches were typically used as part of the celebration, which focused on a procession leading the bride to the groom's house. These torches may have been sticks wrapped with oil rags or lamps, lanterns. In many traditional Palestinian villages, the wedding feast occurred at night after a day of dancing. The bridesmaids leave the bride with, with, with whom they had been staying with and go out to meet the bridegroom with torches. They then escort him back to the bride, who all then, in turn, escort uh, them to the groom's house. Okay, so... If you were a bridesmaid in this parable, in this setting, to see the wedding to be successful, you would have to be sure that you were ready. And there was preparation and there was planning that you would have to figure out. You see, these lanterns uh, or these oil-soaked rags, whatever the the, the lighting source was, they would not last forever. I don't know if you know this. In Jesus' time, electricity wasn't like a thing, okay? So when you're dealing with oil, you're dealing with sticks, you're dealing with rags, they just don't have the burn time that we see today in some of the the modern technology that we have. So uh, in the archaeological stuff that I was reading this last week and some other things, a lot of evidence points to these lamps or these torches would last a maximum of roughly 10 minutes. That's it. So when you're thinking about all night, right, because there's a delay that's explained in this parable. And if you guys can remember when we talked about weddings a couple months ago, um, there was communication with the families of like dowries that were given back and forth. And there's times on wedding days that there'd be continued negotiation, which could have brought the procession, could have prolonged the procession. I know it's really romantic stuff uh, when you're talking about that. But When the torch would go out at that time, you would need to remove the old rag or you need to fill it back up with oil and kind of light it one more time. So when Jesus is talking about five bridesmaids that were not prepared and five that were, that's the context that he's communicating to his disciples with. So when these women are seeing the bridegroom coming, fear likely gripped their hearts because they realized I had a job to do and I did not do it. And if we can even look at verses 6 through 10 again, we could, we could see uh, what this parable is saying. It says, at midnight, the cry rang out. Okay, so there's this alert. Here comes the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. So, guys, it is game time. Let's get up. Let's go meet the bridegroom. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our, amps, our lamps are going out. No, they said, There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins uh, who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Okay? So understanding that is going to inform what Jesus is communicating to his disciples. right? One of the best things I ever heard was, Scripture cannot mean something different to you that it didn't mean to its original audience, okay? So Jesus is communicating to his disciples a few realities in this parable, and really there's two ways that we need to look at that and respond to what Jesus is communicating to the disciples. The first is simple, church. There are things in this world that we cannot put off to the last minute. You see, we can know that Scripture talks about that we don't know the day and the time that Christ is going to return. We can put off our relationship and our walk with him to the last minute, and and, and we can hope that we can accept Jesus at the last minute. But we could also neglect walking in the calling that Jesus has for us. You see, this attitude of uh, blissful ignorance and then getting hit with a brick wall of reality of what the circumstance is, it's something I saw when I was in the banking world more often than I would like to admit. See, as a mortgage officer, when I did that, there's paperwork that's involved with those deals. And I can't tell you how many times, it would surprise you how many times this happened, people would come into my office and go, Michael, I would like to buy a house. I was like, okay, let's do some paperwork. They're like, oh, I already have a contract accepted on the house. I'm like, oh, it's interesting because do you have a pre-approval letter? No, 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 but I already have a contract accepted. I was like, yeah, that's cool. When's this house close? Like when's your close date? Like in two days. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. That's really cool because the disclosures I have to give you from the government require me three days uh, before you can sign them and return to me and there's all this process and all this paperwork and hoops that you have to jump through and early on In my banking career, I really tried to make things happen for people. I tried to take care of people. I took their stress on myself and I would try to make something happen for them. Because if you ever purchased a house or even moved into an apartment, you know it's a really stressful process. There's a lot that goes into it. Your whole life is in motion. There's a lot of difficult circumstances that surround that. But I worked with a gentleman, uh, his name was Steve Walsh, and he was my underwriter, and he pulled me aside and he said, Michael, I I wanna talk to you. I said, what's up, man? He said, look, There are some people that are bringing impossible tasks to your plate. And there's something I wanna tell you, there's something that you need to learn and you need to take this seriously. And this phrase that he told me has stuck with me for almost 20 years now. He said, their lack of planning is not your emergency. Their lack of planning is not your emergency. You see, much like the folks I dealt with at the bank, you see these five bridesmaids not ready and waiting until the last minute to prepare themselves and they are met with this reality that this parable teaches us. There are things in this life that if you are not prepared for, you cannot borrow. You cannot borrow a relationship with Jesus. Do you hear me? You cannot borrow a relationship with Jesus, when you stand in front of the King of Kings, you can't be like, "Hey, I went to Emmaus all those years. You know, you know Ron. You know Michael. You know Tyler. You know Sarah. You know Daniel. You know Quinlan. You know them. I'm good, right?" No, that's not how it works. You can't borrow a relationship. You need to have a relationship with Jesus. You cannot borrow one. You must possess it for yourself. And as we mentioned even just two weeks ago, but often here, there's going to be a day that we're going to stand before the King of Kings, and it's going to be you and him or me and him, not all of us and him. And there's a day in eternity where we're all going to rejoice and spend time together, those that believe in Jesus, but at Judgment Day, it is us and it is him. And if we are in right standing before the King of Kings, we must ensure to have a relationship with him personally punching your ticket, coming to church, volunteering, doing all these things, none of that is what brings us into reconciliation with Jesus. It is the confession of our sins. I think William Barclay illustrates it the best. He says, there are certain things that cannot be obtained at the last minute. It is far too late for a student to be preparing when the day of examination has come. It is too late for a man to acquire a skill or a character if he does not already possess it when some task offers itself to him. Similarly, it is easy to leave things so late that we can no longer prepare ourselves to meet with God. And church, that should be a sobering reminder that we need to make sure that our lives are right before the most high. This reality is something we've spent a lot of time on over the last few weeks as Jesus has been communicating about preparing for the end. We have this beautiful opportunity to connect with God and grow in God the Father. And here we are together as a church body, and we need to ask ourselves, well, what are we doing with our time and our efforts here on earth? And if we think about it, we know that Jesus is coming, but what is the even deeper revelation and reality that we need to take away from this parable? Remember Jesus just talked about the destruction of the temple and how the day and the hour of his return is unknown. He's sharing with his disciples these warning signs that we're seeing. Jesus is is letting us know, guys, in the end it all goes downhill. Okay? It gets crazy. That you're not going to know the day or the time, but know that all the chaos that you're seeing—it's all birthing pains of the end drawing near. And Jesus is charging his disciples with us. With he, Jesus is charging his disciples with something that we need to pay attention to, and it's twofold. One, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be vigilant of the things to come, and we need to learn to endure and persevere until the end. You see, vigilance is defined as keeping a watchful eye for possible danger or difficulties. Take one news story from any news network and go, everything's great. Everything's perfect, isn't it? No, the warning signs are everywhere that this world is far from God. The Antichrist spirit is very prevalent. But as a believer, we must learn to become vigilant. And if we know what is coming, then we have to learn to prepare for it. I teach, once a year, a managerial finance class at Evangel, and I've got this project built into the course where the students have to interview somebody who builds budgets. Um, And there's all sorts of questions that I want them to ask. Um, And and the class is designed, the people that are in it want to be in, like, big management positions and all sorts of stuff, and what comes with those positions is building budgets and presenting budgets to, to boards. And I take that very seriously because I've done that before and I want people to be prepared for those things. But I want them to interview and meet with people who have been down that road before and I ask them to ask simple questions like, um, what was the biggest mistake that they ever made in their career and, and, and if, what is something that they know now that they wish they knew when they were younger or how has the industry changed over the years and so on and so forth? Well, again, I do this because I want these students to recognize that sometimes in leadership you can feel alone. You could feel by yourself. But if you reach out, there's a bigger network of people who actually want to help you and they want to support you more than you realize. That's number one. But number two, a lot of these folks that take these classes, they're, they are telling me and the, and the rest of the, the people that are there that they're praying through things and they really feel that this is a step they need to take in their walk with the Lord to fulfill the promises and the things that, that the Lord has poured into them. So I take that seriously and I wanna prepare them for what those things are. Now one year I had a student who, who uh, did the interview and they handed in this paper and this paper was like great, like a, a really awesome paper. The problem was the person they interviewed had absolutely nothing to do with budgets, okay? So what am I to do? I read this paper and you know, I was like well, this is a zero because there's nothing in here that was done. And this person was very upset and called me and that's the modern way now when something doesn't go their way, you know, you got to have a deeper conversation and complain about it. And I cut the person off. I said, look, I'm not being a jerk, but you need to hear me out. And they said, okay, what? I said, why are you taking this class? Why are you in this program? Well, I want to prepare myself. I want to equip myself for the things that God has called me to do. Hey, that's great. I love that. I said, now, if you just want a grade, How does that prepare you and equip you for where you're going? I said, there's going to be a day that you're going to get the things that God has called you to do. And if you're not prepared for it, you're going to stand in front of people where you're going to present this stuff and you're going to look like you don't know what you're talking about. And I've seen those meetings, trust me, in life, when the board looks at someone and says they're incompetent or doesn't know what they're talking about, that's the only shot you got. Like, nothing good really comes past that. And I know how these communities work and CEOs and executives work. You're probably not going to get another chance at a lot of places for a long time from there. And then I asked them, I said, would you rather fail right now or would you rather fail in front of all those people? And they said, okay, I get it. I said, now, because this is school, you have another chance. I said, I'm going to give you 48 hours. I'm not going to tell you who to talk to, but you need to figure this out. And that person took that very seriously and handed in an unbelievable paper, and we had an opportunity to course correct. Okay? Okay. The student did an excellent job, and I thank God, and that person graduated the program and and is excelling now. And I share that to say that we think, there are times that we as believers can think that we're prepared for what we're stepping into because we've done all this work, but we've not actually ever filtered it through what the Word of God says we're supposed to be doing. Do you hear me? We could think, well, the, the, the greatest good is to give to this cause or to do this thing or to do that thing. Yeah, have you prayed about it? Have you spent time before the Lord? Have you sought the Lord for wisdom for what you're doing? Or are you just acting in the way you think that you should act? If we're not checking our vigilance with Scripture, we're missing out on an opportunity for the Lord to show us what He wants to do and where He wants to take us. 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8 says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may, what does that word say? Pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Church, without prayer, we could think holding signs or stopping marches or burying buckets of food in the ground is how we prepare for the end. But when we pray, God gives us wisdom on what we're supposed to do. When we pray, God gives us discernment on what the right direction is going to be. And when we pray, God gives us empathy for the people who are far away from him. Because it's so easy to, as this end approaches, to go, Dems is crazy, and I don't want any part of that. But when we start praying for them, your heart starts getting softer. And you start going, man, they are so far from you, Lord. Teach me how to reach them. Those who are parents spend a lot of time praying through and navigating how they raise their children. That same fervency is how we need to pray for those who don't know Jesus. I've seen a lot of crazy creeds that churches are saying, and they're changing the gospel from its entirety. Pastor Ron and I talk about this stuff. Guys, there is an antichrist spirit out there. There's a reason why when we're, when we're in Ecuador, we had the folks take their Bibles and show them in their Bible, this is what the word of God says. It's saying we're not manipulating anything. We are filtering everything through scripture. Vigilance is about knowing what is coming and preparing appropriately for it. And Jesus has been warning his disciples of what is to come, these birthing pains, things to pay attention to, and we need to do the same. And as the end draws near, vigilance alone is not enough. We also must learn to endure until the end. You see, endurance is this. Endurance is the grit it takes to get through a difficult process or situation without giving way. It's holding the line and every time I think about endurance, I always think about running. And uh, the running community is just, it's this fascinating group of people because it's unlike any sport that you'll ever see, right? You, you, you follow football, you follow baseball, there's one champion, okay? You follow soccer, whatever, there's one champion. In racing, sure, there's one person who ran the fastest race, but if you watch the finish line at any race, what's happening? The crowd is cheering for every single person that crosses Finish line. You see, all those people know that running a race requires mental toughness, and and when you're running, especially long distances, every single part of your body hurts. Your brain hurts. Your brain is not supposed to hurt, but it hurts because there's mental fortitude that needs to be established to complete something difficult. A few years ago, I had a dear friend of mine, Steve, who is is should not be running anywhere. He he was. Uh, honorably uh, discharged from the military because he was in jump school and he had all leg problems from jumping out of planes and all sorts of stuff and should not run at all. And this cat's probably run like 35 marathons at this point. Okay, it's unbelievable what he's done. Um, And one time he ran the St. Louis marathon. Now, if you guys have ever run a 5K half marathon or full marathon, the courses are really interesting. The 5K course is really loud because a lot of people can do a 5K. The half marathon course is a little loud because the, the course kind of revolves around where the end of the race is. But the full marathon course, you're in places where you're like by yourself because that's just how these go. And if you're not paying attention to the signs of where you're supposed to go, you're going to get lost. And my friend Steve got to mile 20 of his race. Now, mile 20 is like we're almost at the end. You're in single digit numbers for where you need to go. But six miles is really far away still. 6.2 miles actually, right? A full marathon is 26.2 miles. And at the 20 mile mark, he made a wrong turn. Miserable. Not only did he make a wrong turn, he did not realize it until three miles later. And he was like, maybe I'm just running a short mi- a long mile. I don't see any signs. And, he, and when it dawned on him, he pulled up his phone and his GPS. He's like, I have made a mistake. Now, A marathon is 26.2 miles on the course. He is right now at 23 miles, but he's only run 20 miles of the actual course. And Steve has a decision to make. Do you just quit? Because whatever, I don't have it in me to run another 10.2 miles because that's what was left, or 9.2 miles. Almost a half marathon is what was left at that point. Or does he turn around and keep going and say, "I'm, I'm gonna finish this? And that's what he did. He turned around. He ran the three miles back, got on course, and finished the race. So he ran over 30 miles instead of running 26.2 miles. And you know what he got when he finished? The same thing that everybody else got. He got a medal and a clap and a shake of the hand. And you know, there was not one time, I spent a lot of time with Steve, a lot of time with Steve. There was not one time I heard him complain about how the course wasn't labeled right. I didn't hear him complain that, oh, they didn't do this or they didn't do that. He took responsibility for the mistake that he made. He owned it, and he got back on track, and he kept going. And church, trust me, there are going to be distractions after distractions after distractions, things to take your time away. Social media is designed to take your life away. That's, that's their currency. They want your time. They want, there's things that are, are looking to take you away from what God has for you. This level of endurance is something that Steve, we could all learn a lesson from him. He took, he didn't quit because it got hard. He took a difficult situation and he finished the race. William Barclay also said this. He said, endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it into glory. Church, this life is going to be filled with difficult circumstances. Some of you here are sick. Some of you have family members that are sick or hurting. Some of you have things going on in your life that are are difficult, but you can't give up. You have to learn that there's a reason and a purpose, no matter how we like it or don't like it, but the Lord is wanting to do something in your circumstances and in you. We have to give our time to him and pray and spend it with him. I promise you, church, as the end draws near and the Lord's return comes closer, things are going to get harder. They just are. There are times we're gonna feel like Steve just miles off course, like, Lord, where are you? Times where we'll be persecuted for our faith. But let us be reminded what James 1:12 tells us, which is blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Church, when we talk about vigilance, when we talk about endurance, It can seem like this foreign thing. It can seem like deep spiritual things are are challenging. But I promise you, the last song that Daniel picked for the opening time of worship, guys, you are not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone in digging in and seeking after God. We're promised that if we seek him, we're going to find him. We're promised that he's going to walk through these difficult circumstances with us. And if we can remember what the Apostle Paul shared in Philippians 3.13, he says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There is not a title, position, pay, or anything else that is going to equal the reward that we get when we stand before the king and we hear, well done. That is everything. We can build kingdoms here on earth. We could build empires here on earth. We could do all of those things, and all of it is going to fade away. It's all going to go. We could spend our time in, in all these different things, or we can connect with the Lord, the King of kings, and say, Okay, God, I know there's going to be a day that you're coming back. Show me how to respond. Show me how to act. Show me how to walk in these circumstances. And trust that you are not alone in them. Brothers and sisters, I pray, and as the worship team could make their way up, that we would learn to stay vigilant and endure as this world grows darker and comes to a close. But I pray that we would not be afraid of the day the Lord returns, but that we would learn to prepare for it. And we as a church body, praying for us, praying for the kids that are at at camp right now, the ones that are about to go to to high school camp, praying for the children's ministry— praying for the recovery ministry. I met with Derek, who's, who's been running those uh, this last week. We're up to like 25 people coming to the recovery groups on Saturday nights. Guys, God is doing something here, amen. God is doing something here in this church body, and to him be the glory. That's why we do everything. We're not setting out on a mission to, to, to make it about us. It's about the king of kings. It is about what God is doing, and guys, I just want to be a part of that, amen. So guys, as we're closing, let's, let's look at this time to reflect, which the first is, is a serious question. Are you putting off your relationship with the Lord? I know we have, both Pastor Ron and I, this question keeps coming up. Guys, if you are far from the Lord, it is time to come home. It is time to look at God and say, you know what, I have been far from you. I have ignored your teachings. I know that you're calling me. I'm tired of doing it all on my own. I'm ready to encounter you, then encounter him. And there's going to be men and women in the back that are ready to pray for you. We'd love to lead you to who Jesus is. But number two, for those that are believers, are you preparing your life for the return of the Lord? Are you preparing in a way that involves prayer and seeking God and how he's taking you? And lastly, do you need prayer and encouragement to endure? Do you feel like you're at a point where the world is crushing you or you have all these problems on your back and you don't know how to proceed? then brothers and sisters, let's yoke up with you. Let's pray with you and over you that the Holy Spirit would intervene in your life and and you would learn to take his burden. Because it's easy. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king of kings, Lord, and you are coming back, Father. And when you come back, we are fully recognizing that when those doors shut, they are shut, Father. So, God, I pray that we would take the reality of your coming seriously, Lord, but you would teach us to grow and endure in you. That we would open your word and we would study it and read it, Father, and it would come to life in our hearts and in our souls. God, that you would teach us how to share your love with others, Lord, and that we would not do things out of our own might and will, but we'd seek you first, Jesus, so that you would take us where you want us to go, Lord. We don't want to be left out of the promised land, God, because of our own ignorance and fear of where you're taking us. We want to walk fully in the promises that you have for us, Lord. And God, we want none of the glory, Lord. We want to honor you in everything. We want your kingdom to expand. We want the lost to be found, Father. So Jesus, as we take this time to worship you, as our time together draws to a close, I pray that you would meet with us. I pray that you wouldn't leave until you're done with us, Lord. God, and you would stir things in our heart that would draw us closer to you. Lord, you're good. You're so good, Lord. And you don't leave us alone, God. You walk with us every step of the way. Let us learn to trust you more. In your name we pray, Father. Amen.